Um, if I could encourage you, if this is your uh, first, second, maybe third time here and you've never taken time to fill out one of the welcome cards, this would be a great time for you to do that. If you wouldn't mind, um, later today when you leave, you can drop them in those boxes in the back of the auditorium that say offering on them. Um, here at the church, especially if this is a, something that you're very new to, we don't receive an offering in the service. Rather, we have offering boxes in the back and people participate that way. If... Um, if God leads you to do that in obedience to supporting the church. Uh, just a reminder for you along those lines, a lot of people going on vacation this summer. Some have already started to do that, so don't forget your church and your responsibility in that area. As I teach this morning, um, you'll want to know that there are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you that are uh, a Revised Standard Version and uh, NIV. Um, we teach primarily out of the uh, Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Version up here, but there's NIVs also there. If you don't own your own Bible, you are welcome to take one of those with you so that you have your own copy of God's Word. Um, I'll, I'll give a disclaimer here at the beginning, and just kind of a warning. If, uh, if any of you are thinking of seeking uh, political office or office of the presidency in your future, you might find this message to be a little politically incorrect. And so uh, given what's happened in the news lately with pastors speaking their mind and getting political candidates in trouble, I thought I should tell you that in advance, um, just so you could disclaim maybe that you were here or make sure you're not on video. Um, for this reason, I am not an individual who is concerned with political correctness. I am concerned with God correctness. And the passage that I'm teaching out of today would be greatly considered uh, to be politically incorrect. However, I don't care. Uh, I do care about the authentic teaching of God's Word, and not in a derogatory way. We are going to examine Genesis 16 and what God said was going on there that has implications in your own world today, and it has implications as far as the things that you're experiencing. So I want to be right up front with you so that you understand God has some very specific things that he says in Genesis 16. I want to uh, preface this by telling you uh, just a little background. Um, on Friday this last week, I was part of a funeral. And on that particular day, I went through a cemetery. And while walking through the cemetery, I noticed um, a lot of grave markers that had been set aside for the purpose of honoring veterans who had fallen. Uh, gratefully so, Gary Post acknowledged people last week when he taught here who served as veterans in war. But I was reminded, perhaps even more so, because this is the week of Memorial Day that we celebrate our veterans, of the sacrifice that they paid as I'm walking through the cemetery. And I'm seeing row upon row of flags put in front of the tombstones of men who had fallen in battle. And attached to those tombstone crosses and the Star of David. And it set me back of, these are men who identified themselves with God, many of them who identified themselves with Jesus Christ. And then I came home and read uh, a little bit of a story in the news that I want to share with you that took me to a whole new plane of thinking. Let me read this. It's just a paragraph. It's out of the Detroit Free Press. 
This is the headline. A Michigan high school wrestling coach is outraged after being dismissed from his position of 35 years for allowing his former assistant, a local pastor, to try converting to try to convert Muslim students to Christianity. The coach, Jerry Marzalak, allowed the Reverend Trey Hancock to discuss religion with members of the team at the Dearborn Public High School, which has a predominantly Muslim student body, the Detroit News reported. Hancock admitted to discussing Christianity with Muslim youths, telling the paper, I consider it my work to pastor anyone who is within my reach. But Hancock also insisted that he never spoke about religion on school grounds or as part of his work with the wrestling team. Coach Marzalak criticized the decision, saying he never witnessed Hancock discussing religion with students and telling the paper, the principal has never, ever attended a practice or a wrestling meet, but he made a random judgment on the team according to which Arabic parents complained about another parent who is a Christian minister. A crowd of 300 parents backed a Board of Education decision showing their support for Principal Amud Imad Fadala. What's the bigger issue going on here? Is it American way of life contrary to a Middle Eastern way of life? Or is it really Christianity, the claims of Christ, at war against the claims of Islam? Now that can sound very politically charged. You wait until we get into Genesis 16. Is God ever surprised by the actions of man? That's the question I had to ask myself as I entered into this study this morning. Is God ever surprised by our activities, by our decisions? This message could be more appropriately titled, Getting Ahead of God, but before I get ahead of myself, I want to review with you where we've been. Let's back all the way up to Genesis 12, and let's bring the map up of Abram's journey. And we talked seven weeks ago when we started on this journey that Abram was called from southern Iraq all the way down at the Ur of the Chaldees, And God said to him, I am going to make out of you a great nation. He traveled all the way up to Haran, where he lived for 15 years, which is on the southern border of Turkey. And for 15 years, he waited for his father to pass away. And then he responded to God's call and traveled down into the area called Shechem, which we call today Israel or Canaanite country. And there he lived... And he went on a journey because of a famine in the land down into Egypt. And in Egypt, Pharaoh captured his wife. And then Pharaoh gave him back his wife. And he returned back to Canaan. And then his nephew Lot was captured. And he was hauled away by the four kings. And Abram approached the four kings at night with his armed forces of 300 men and captured all the captives and returned them back bringing Lot back with him. And then we learned two weeks ago about the covenant immediately following that that God established with Abram, the father of a chosen nation, saying, I will bless you abundantly, and out of you will come blessings to the entire world. Now, immediately following that in Genesis chapter 15, 
we arrive today at Genesis chapter 16. God has made his plan known. He's made it visible to Abram what he's about to do. And as a follow-up to that, Satan makes a counter move. You remember I told you a few months ago that every time God makes a move, Satan makes a counter move. God makes a move in his plan, Satan makes a counter move to try and throw him off course. What you see today in Genesis chapter 16 is Satan making a counter move. His fingerprints are all over this story. Look with me at Genesis chapter 16 and verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Hagar means in Hebrew to be a fugitive. Literally, that's the name Sarai gave her, to be a fugitive, whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. God has already told Abram, You're going to be the father of a great nation but didn't specifically say that Sarai was going to be the mother. And she comes up with her own plan to try and force God's hand. And she says, Abram, I'm going to give my maid over to you. And why did she do that? In this day and age, this particular time, a woman who had no children, who was barren, was despised in society. They were greatly looked down upon. Even though she was the wife of a highly accomplished man, She felt unfulfilled and as though she was the one blocking God from accomplishing what he wanted to do. And so she said, take my maid and perhaps you will have a child by her. She didn't know that God's delays are not God's denials. God was taking longer than she thought he should take. And in her own words, she indicates a knowledge that it's God that's prevented her. Look at the words closely. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She has a reluctance to accept God's plan, a hesitation, so she creates her own plan. She seems to have considered it her responsibility to act on behalf of God. Now here's what Sarai does. She said, Abram, let's enact the code of Hammurabi. This is an ancient code that I'm going to explain to you in just a little bit. So let's keep the code of Hammurabi, and I'm going to give you my maid so that your line doesn't die out. God didn't specifically say that Sarai would be the mother, but it's implied because she's his wife. Now, God is not specific all the time in Scripture. There are a lot of gray areas. In the areas that are gray, he expects us to use common sense. But in an example like this, it proves that common sense is not all that common. Because many times we take the gray areas and use them to our advantage. And that's what happens here. This is the sin of presumption. Failing to trust God, to believe that he's really going to do what he said he was going to do. Look at the next verse. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. I really want you to get that down. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Of Sarai. The word is Shema. Listened. Shema. A primitive root to hear intelligently, with an action, with obedience. 
Abram listened to the wife and obeyed her. It's more than just hearing her and saying, hey, that's a great idea. Okay, let's do that. It was, he processed it. He considered the implications and he obeyed, taking action. He was a participant in this deception. This harkens back, and it's the exact same sentence structure that's used in Genesis chapter 3 when God said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you have shema your wife, when she led you deceptively, Abram shema, he listened to his wife and obeyed her. It's a synonym for obedience in the Old Testament. Verse 3, after Abram had lived 10 years, now this is a long time, let's cut Sarah some slack. Long time, 10 years from now, 2008, 2018, if God promised you something today and you're waiting 10 years for it to be fulfilled, that is a long time. So it's within the realms of human reason that she came up with her own plan. But it represents a sense of, I don't believe God's going to do what he said he was going to do. After Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. You may have been here a few weeks ago when I explained that when Abram went down to Egypt and he was under the hand of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh returned him to Israel saying, get out of here, he sent with him handmaids, men servants, maid servants, oxen. Hagar was one of those Egyptian slaves that came up with him out of Egypt. And Sarah says, take my handmaid, not as a concubine, but look at the last word, as his wife. She's trying to make this a legally binding marriage so that whoever comes out of Hagar will be an heir to Abram's throne. Take him as his wife. And, he, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. Verse 4. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised. Kalar is the word there. Just remember that for a minute. And her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was kalar, I was despised. The word means cursed. Now what did God say to people who would curse Abram? Those who will curse you, I will curse. Those who will bless you, I will bless. You see here, Hagar cursing Abram's family. I was despised. I was kalar in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. You're watching an ancient domestic dispute. Abram, Sarah, duking it out. I told you to do this, but you told me to do this, but you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have known what I was thinking. You see a domestic dispute arising here. All right? Sarai begins blaming Abram for doing what she had asked him to do. 
because he failed to take the position as the spiritual head of the family and say, no, no, Sarai. God said, you and I are husband and wife. And that the new line, the blessing to the world, would come through me. He didn't do that. He just heeded his wife. And he said, okay. Now, understand, there's nothing immoral going on here according to the law of the day. Having a polygamous relationship is common in this time setting. There were laws that allowed this to be under the code of Hammurabi. But it's not the direction of God. Just because the laws of the land make it legal doesn't make it right in God's eyes. Now, you see a a, a diversion here. And I want to explain to you what's going on under the code of Hammurabi. Because he said, behold, she's in your hand. Your maid is in your power. Now, Abram lived around 2000 B.C., in about a 175-year span of time. The same time that the first king of the Babylonian Empire rose to power by the name of Hammurabi. The Code of Hammurabi is something that you can see today. It was written back around 1940 B.C., and it was enacted as the law of the land for everybody who lived in the Middle East. Let's take a look at the photo of the Code. Can we see that a minute? It looks like gibberish if you look at it close up. Now, if you go to the Louvre in Paris, you will see a statue about six foot tall, solid black, and on all four sides of it are written 232 codes of common law behavior. One of those, which is that you can take a wife, the Code of Hammurabi. If you get on websites and you look at the Louvre in Paris, you can still see this thing, 4,000 years old, and it has these laws in it. As a matter of fact, here's one of the laws that related specifically to them. If a man take a wife and she give this man a maidservant as wife and she bear him children and then this maid assume equality with the wife because she has borne him children, her master shall not sell her for money, but he may keep her as a slave, reckoning her among the maidservants. Behold, your maid is in your power. She is one of your slaves Put her back into slave status. If you don't like it, Sarah, make her a slave again. And that's what you see happening. Sarah returned her to slave status and treated her harshly. Behold, your maid is in your power. Do with her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. He's letting Sarai have her way again. First, Sarai says, go into my maid. Then Sarai comes and comes, complains to him. And instead of saying, she's pregnant, we can't just mistreat her, he lets Sarai have her way twice. Now, verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Shur being interpreted the wall. What wasn't discovered until quite about 20, 30 years ago is that the Egyptians had actually built a wall around their northern border. And it was called the Shur Wall. She was on her way back to Egypt. She's running away as a slave girl, expecting, and she takes off for what's familiar to her 10 years ago. She's running home. She's running back to home, trying to get back to what was safe. 
and God finds her along the way. This is an appearance of Jesus pre-incarnate, the angel of the Lord. When you see the angel of the Lord used in this way, it occurs 58 times in Scripture. This is pre-incarnate Jesus. God once again intervening when man has messed it up. Think of Genesis chapter 3. Think of when Adam and Eve fell, committed sin, and then God had to show up on the scene and set things right again. You see the exact same thing happening here. The angel of the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And what does he say to her in verse 8? He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, not Abram's wife. Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from? Think of God in the garden. Adam, where are you? Adam, where have you been? Sarah's maid, where have you come from? God's talking to her. And where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Even Hagar recognizes she's been returned to slave status. My mistress, I'm running from her. God never accepted Hagar as Abram's wife. It was contrary to his plan. You can even see that in that sentence. He calls her Sarai's maid, not Abram's wife. Verse 9, Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Where else would she go? Going to Egypt was a bad idea. She's a runaway slave. She has nothing. And she's expecting Of course, it makes sense for her to return to the home of Abram where he can raise that child. Now, watch what God does. In response to her obedience, if she submits herself and she goes back, God said there's a blessing because this will be a son of Abram. Moreover, verse 10, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Now, theologically, let me explain this to you so you understand why most individuals would say who study theology that this is an appearance of Jesus. First of all, he takes on the personal pronoun, I will greatly multiply. And later on, Hagar calls him God. You are the God who sees. And specifically, you'll see in just a minute that the appearance of this angel, not a common angel, angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ, says, you are going to name him Ishmael, and I will make him a great nation. So let's watch this unfold. There's overtones of the Abrahamic covenant here. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, meaning God hears, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Now watch what happens here. This is God prophesying. This is not a man. This is not an angel. This is God saying, here's the future of the world. Watch closely. Verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of all his brothers. 
God transitions very quickly into the nature and the character of this individual and his offspring. He's not speaking just of Ishmael. He's speaking of the society that will come from him. And we can't lump all the categorical descriptions of the offspring of Ishmael into some of these descriptions. But categorically, God is saying, those who come from this child, this nation that rises up, their hands will be against everyone. He's not calling Ishmael any names here, but he calls him a wild donkey. Now, some, if you have the King James Version, it, it has a more graphic description than that that I won't even say. But specifically, God's saying a wild donkey fits this description. Wild donkeys on the Sinai Peninsula, they lived out in the wilderness. They roamed. They were hard to put a bridle around. You could not contain them. And that's why he said he will be a wild donkey of a man. He will be ferocious. You can't think of a donkey as being ferocious, can you? But for these people, a donkey who lived on the Sinai Peninsula was wild, and you couldn't get around him. He was constantly bucking. But God gives a further description. He said his hand will be against everyone. He's going to live, his offspring are going to live with an attitude of hostility towards their brothers, and that they will live to the east of all their brothers. I want you to understand, and this is not meant in any way to be critical of the, of the people who are the offspring of Ishmael, the Arabian nation. But those who are not followers of God, who are of the Arabian nation, who are, and I know godly men who follow Jesus Christ, who are of the Arabian nation, but I know those who follow Islam, they are, in many senses, violent against Israel. And they want Israel to not exist. And what you see here is a culmination, beginning, of world events set in place that affect your world even today, that will lead right into the end times. This is so critical to understand the role that Ishmael plays that I, I want to illustrate this just a little bit further so you really get down what God is saying. He's not saying they're unredeemable any more than any of us in this room are unredeemable. We are all redeemable in Jesus Christ. But those who choose to reject Jesus Christ are for Satan. Jesus said, if you are not for me, you are against me. A divided house cannot stand. You are either for Christ or you're against him. If you are against him, you belong to the forces of Satan. If you are for Jesus Christ, you belong to the forces of God. Very harsh talk, isn't it? Okay? Understand how important this is to the people of Islam that they see Ishmael, Ishmael, the firstborn of Abram. They certainly believe that he is the blessed one that God was going to bring about a great nation through. So much so that I want you to get a couple images in your mind. Take a look at this picture. You see in the center of this gathering of almost a million people, what they call the Kaaba, the box in the center of the gathering. They believe that the Kaaba is a facility that was built by Abram and his son Ishmael by which they can worship God. 
It's required of every person of Islam to go to Mecca at least once in their lifetime to worship at that building because they certainly believe that that is where God is present, not in the form of Jesus Christ and in the church of Jesus Christ, but at the Kaaba. Now look at the next picture. Two million people. Have you ever in your life seen two million Christians gathered together in one place to worship? Islam fervently believes that their direction is the direction to God. Do you as firmly believe that Jesus Christ is your way to God? Do you have that kind of conviction that you would spend your life savings to travel to the Middle East? That's what many of these individuals do. They're that convinced that Ishmael was the one by which the promise would be brought forward. Now God said emphatically, prophetically, his hand will be against all his brothers. You only see Jesus appearing in Scripture, pre-incarnate, at times when something monumental affecting the world was about to take place. And what you see, not only God rescuing a slave girl and giving her a hope and a promise, but you see Jesus saying, here is the destiny of a nation. Did God indeed make them a great nation? Did God indeed make them a great nation? Absolutely. They are a powerful people. Second largest religion in the world next to Christianity. Two and a half billion people now say that they align themselves with Islam. Now let's look at verse 13 and see what the mother of this great nation said about God. Verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. God is never caught by surprise. Just because Abram deviated by listening to his wife, hearkening to him, just because this little servant girl became pregnant with Abram's firstborn son, God was not caught by surprise. When things in your life don't go the way that you think they're supposed to be going, and God must be shocked, how did I end up here? He is never shocked. Now, when God cannot rule, like in this situation where Abram made his own decision because of free will, free will, where God cannot rule, he overrules. And he set Ishmael aside and he allows him to play a role in the eternal destiny of the world. In the future of what happens to all mankind, this little baby was about to play a significant role because of the great nation that would rise up around him. I think what you can take away from this message 
is not the issue of the immorality. The morality versus the immorality under the Code of Hammurabi and what they did under the laws of the land, you can debate that to your blue in the face. The greater sin committed here that you can take away and apply to your own life is in disbelieving God's promise. The greater sin is that Abram didn't believe that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Let me ask it to you this way so you can apply it in a different manner. Did God indeed allow Isaac to be born from Sarai and Abram in their elderly age? Yes. Did God indeed raise up a great nation out of Isaac? Yes. Did God indeed bless the entire world through Isaac? Yes. So therefore, you can say God does do what he said he was going to do even though it didn't happen within their time frame. Now, take that over and transfer that same application to the same God who reappeared 2,000 years later and said, I am coming back again. I am returning. You can count on it. And by the way, in the meantime, while I'm gone, you better be telling people about who I am. Because I am returning. I am going to make a place for you. And I will judge the world. Same God, always fulfilling his promises through time, accomplishing his purposes, even when it looks like man is trying to derail him. Sobering. But he is returning. His promise is sure. With that, we leave. Would you bow with me? Father, these are deep things, and we certainly, in the midst of all this, want to be reminded of your grace because it transcends everything. As much as you redeemed me and called me into your kingdom, you desire to call people from all over the world into your kingdom. You desire that the people who call themselves followers of Allah, would actually proclaim Jesus Christ. Help us never to forget that. I'm concerned, Father, even for those of us in this room who believe that we really think we are followers of Christ but don't live like it. And I don't know what's the greater tragedy, but you get to judge that. I don't. So, Father, for those who in this room, who have said, I belong to Christ, I follow him, help us to live like it in such a way that the world will stand up and take notice, that they would say of us, the people of New Hope Church, there goes a person who is sold out to Jesus Christ. I identify him. Make us that noticeable to the world, Father. God, I ask that for my brothers and sisters in this room as they take on another week in front of them. Empower them to go out of this place boldly for you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.